I'm going to invite everyone in the auditorium to turn your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. While you're turning there, if you are a first-time guest, this is what the Connect card looks like. It's in the back. It's in the seat back, down in the pocket. Please pull it out. Please fill it out and put it in the offering box in the back on the left as you leave, right by the mirror where the cross is. So go ahead and fill those out and turn those in in the offering box. 1 Timothy chapter 3. Now, I'm going to tell you right now, if, if we, do we have any homiletic professors in the, in the building? Anyone who's an expert on how to put together a sermon? Because this is not going to be a good example of how to put together a sermon, okay? This is a series, probably. It should be at least a three-part series, and we're going to do it all today. So uh, just fasten your seatbelts and get your Bibles out, or if you're on the iPhone, got your Bible app, or got your iPad, or whatever, just uh, we'll, we'll, find, uh, we'll find lots of scriptures today. Uh, so 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, this is a true saying, if a man desire the office of a bishop, he desires a good work. Now, sometimes when we think about bishop, we think about someone with a big pointy hat and someone who is higher up in a particular denominational uh, liturgy type thing, but that's not what it is. A bishop is, a, uh, is an overseer of a church, and so he says if a man desires the office of a bishop, he desires a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach, not given to wine, no striker, not greedy, a filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous, one that rules well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man knows not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? And then a warning, not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, in addition, he must have a good report of those who are without, outside the church, lest he fall into reproach in the snare of the devil. Now, that's the King James Version. Listen to the NLT. It's a little different. This is a trustworthy saying. If someone aspires to be an elder or a bishop, an overseer, he desires an honorable position. So an elder must be a man whose life is above reproach. He must be faithful to his wife. In other words, a one-woman man. He must exercise self-control, live wisely, have a good reputation. He must enjoy having guests in his home. He must be able to teach. He must not be a heavy drinker, given to much wine, or to be violent. He must be gentle, not quarrelsome, and love, not money. He must manage his own family well, having children who respect and obey him. If a man cannot manage his own household, how can he take care of God's church? An elder must not be a new believer because he might become proud, and the devil would cause him to fall by pride, just as did the devil. Also, people outside the church must speak well of him so that he will not be disgraced and fall into the devil's trap. Now, how many of you know here that your church, First Baptist Church, Coronado, is in a time of transition? You got that figured out? Okay. Um, it is. And, and did you know also that everything changes? Everything changes. Life, every one of us changed. Look in the mirror. Every one of us changed. Trees change. Grass changes. Uh, pets change. Uh, little babies grow up. Your kids that are so adorable and so cute right now, they're going to grow up, and pretty soon they'll have kids of their own. It just happens so quickly. Uh, change can be good or it can be bad. Uh, but either way, it is inevitable. It would happen. It will happen. It dawned on me um, when I was in a transition process in my church uh, that where I'd been for 41 years that every pastor is an interim pastor. <laughs> every pastor. I don't care if someone's somewhere 50 years. They're just there for a time and a season, and then 
something happens, they move on. Or they pass away. Or uh, they, they go somewhere else. If you love your church at all, you have been wondering what kind of person will First Baptist Church get to be her pastor? What kind of person will that be? What kind of gifts will they have? What kind of skills and talents should they possess? Uh, and these are all excellent questions. But this morning, I want you to turn that thing around completely. I don't want you to think about that for a moment. And I want you to think about what kind of people should you be? What kind of people would a pastor want to call, okay? What kind of people would a pastor say, you know, this is who I want to be in my church? I, I want to suggest to you that everything I read in 1 Timothy chapter 3 has to do with character. All of the qualifications have to do with character. Not so much ability, skills, talents, beauty, any of that, but character. And a character is, to me, is the most important thing that you consider, um, So I want to suggest that you all work on being people of great character so that God will send you somebody who will be a blessing to you and and will do something great in this church. Almost um, uh, all of these things, there there are probably several other things, but, you know, we got to be out sometime today. So I limited it just to the things that are in the outline here. So start out with a Christian. Uh, Everybody in this church ought to be born again, child of God. Every single person who's a member of this church, now everybody's welcome, right? I, I, I don't care who it is. I don't care what kind of faith they come from. I don't care if it's an atheist or an agnostic or uh, whatever. If they walk through these doors, they ought to be welcome, and you ought to make them feel welcome. But I'm going to tell you something. In your membership, it ought to be limited to those who have placed their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is paramount. That is, the Bible says they were baptized and they believed and were baptized and added unto them on that day of Pentecost about 3,000 souls. So, uh, so when you believe and then you get baptized into the body, uh, then you become the kind, of a, the kind of person that a pastor would like to call a Christian. Uh, there is salvation in no other name, no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And, and we, we, we're in a weird time in our history right now where that whole statement, that whole scripture is being challenged. And, and we're, trying, we're, we're being taught that in the name of pluralism that we ought to accept every way as being uh, equal. And I got to tell you that it's not some Baptist preacher who said there's only one name under heaven. It's not some, uh, some Bible, Baptist Bible college somewhere that said there's only... In fact, it's not the Baptist way. It is Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but by him. So... Uh, many will say in that, you say, well, preacher, you, you know, you've only been here a little while. We're all Christians, and I hope so. But just saying you're a Christian doesn't make you that. I know that you know that. Uh, so the Bible says, Jesus said, in fact, in the last days that, that many would say, Lord, Lord, have we not done these many things in your name? And he'd say, depart from me, for I never knew you. Never knew you. So there are a lot of people who are deceived in thinking they're Christian for a variety of reasons. Maybe because they have joined a church. Maybe because they have gone through catechism. Maybe because they have been baptized. Maybe because they were born in the United States of America, which is a Christian nation or used to be a Christian nation. But the only basis for being a Christian is faith by grace through faith. In the Lord Jesus Christ, trusting him and what he did and dying on the cross and being buried and raising again. So, so I would say the kind of people a pastor wants to call would be people who are born again, who are saved. Secondly, who are not worldly. Uh, Paul said, don't be selfish. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 3, don't, don't try to impress others. Be humble. 
Thinking of others is better than yourself. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. You must have the same attitude that Jesus Christ had, though he was God. He did not think of equality with God. Jesus as the Son didn't think that equality with the Father was something that, uh, that, he, that he had to show everybody all the time. Rather, he gave up his divine privileges. He was still God, but he gave up his divine privileges. He was born uh, just like we were, just like these kids were. Uh, he was raised up in a, in a sinful world. The Bible says he took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. And when he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross because crucifixion was a criminal's death. It was reserved for those who had broken the law, broken the law of Caesar, and he did that. So uh, his, and one of the great things about Christians is that they, they learn to think of others above themselves. They learn to put others before themselves. I'm going to challenge you all, whether it's at work, whether it's at home, whether it's at play, to put others ahead of yourself, because that is what Jesus did. So no unsaved members, no worldly members. Uh, Jesus is the vine. We're the branches. We need to remain in him and him in us, and we produce fruit and much fruit, and apart from him, we can do nothing. So born again, saved members. Secondly, humble. Pride is one of the deadly sins. It robs uh, God of his glory do him. It robs him of his honor and his praise. And Proverbs, the wisest man who ever lived, wrote in Proverbs chapter 15, verse 33, fear of the Lord teaches wisdom. Humility precedes honor. We live in a world that everybody wants honor. Everybody wants awards. Everybody wants the preeminence, but they're not willing to go through the first step according to the wisest man who lived, which is humility. Before humility, or before uh, honor, rather, there is humility. So, uh, I'll tell you what, a humble congregation, one who realizes that every good gift we have comes from God. Every good thing in our lives comes from God. My wife comes from God. The beauty of this day comes from God. The the glory of the flowers and the animal kingdom come from God. Every good thing comes from him. Uh, Man is not responsible for any good thing. It's God who's responsible for every good thing. So let's give him the honor and the glory for everything. Thirdly, uh, a loving person, a, a person who a pastor would like to call would be a loving person, a godly person. And you know that the word for love and the Christian sense and, the, and a godly love is agape. You've heard that word, agape love. It's not the eros. It's not even the filio, the Philadelphia love, which is brotherly love, which is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. Uh, but it's agape love. It's a godly love, which is an unconditional love. I said last week on Mother's Day, you, you don't tell your kids, I love you if, you be, if you're good. You say, I love you, period. Your love for your children is unconditional. Your love for your husband or wife is unconditional. It's this kind of love, this godly love, this unselfish love, this unconditional love that nailed Jesus to the cross. It wasn't the nails. It was the love that he had for you and for me, and for his father, and for the whole world that caused him to go to the cross. Paul would later on write in a great chapter, chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians, as he lists all kinds of things that are good, he says, three things will last forever, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love, or charity in the King James. The greatest of these is love. The fourth thing 
that a pastor would like to see in a congregation is purity, sanctification, a cleanliness, a holiness. This is a badly stained world in which we live today. It's one that is stained with adultery and pornography and homosexuality and idolatry and all of that abounds and they're even bragged about. And they're, they're available 24-7. And you've got to be careful because on these devices and on your computers and on your iPads, without being invited, they can pop up. Things come on. His, you know, I'm, I'm a Russian cutie and I'd love to get to know you better. What? I don't need Russian cuties. Don't want to know any Russian cutie. I got my own cutie. And I'm perfectly content with my cutie. And that goes right in the trash. I don't want to see it. I don't want to think about it. We, we go into motel rooms uh, when we're traveling. And, and sometimes they used to. They don't do it so much now. But they used to put ads for certain programming up on the, the top. One of the first things we do is take that and turn it face down. Don't want to see it. You say, well, you're afraid you'd be. T-? Yeah. I don't trust me. I don't trust you. I don't trust people because people are sinners. Did you, did you know that? People are sinful. And, and I don't want anything to do with pornography. I don't want anything to do with, uh, with uh, these things that are available 24-7, 365 by way of computer, phones, uh, movies, TV, etc. How pure are your thoughts before God today? How pure are, 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 have we thought things and seen things and heard things in the last 24 hours that we would be embarrassed for Jesus to know about? I got news for you. He knows about it. (laughs) He knows about it. Jesus said, God blesses those whose hearts are pure, for they shall see God. I'm not talking about being good enough to get to heaven. I'm talking about being sanctified. The word sanctified means to be set apart. This piano is sanctified. It is. It's, it's, it's not a person, but it's sanctified. You know why? It's set apart for God. You don't, you don't let this go out to the honky-tonks and nightclubs during the week, do you? And let it, now, this is dedicated to God. This keyboard is sanctified. This, I don't even know what they call that. Where's, where's Bobby? I didn't see him today. He's not running the race, is he? <laughs> That's sanctified. These music stands are sanctified. These light fixtures are sanctified. You, as a child of God, are supposed to be sanctified, set apart. I'd be very disappointed if this wound up in some place where there was all kinds of ungodliness going on and they were wailing on that thing. And I would be, well, how do you think God feels when we, as his, his believers, his children are unholy and unclean. We're supposed to be dedicated to him. Leviticus eleven forty four says, But I am the Lord your God. You must consecrate yourselves and be holy. Why? Because I am holy, he says. You must consecrate yourselves. Nobody else is going to do it for you. You can dedicate your children like we did last week. And they said, you can dedicate your children, but guess what? You've got to consecrate yourself. Set yourself apart. As unto the Lord, be pure. Number five, be honest and honorable. Be honest and honorable. The opposite of hypocritical. Not professing one thing and doing another thing, but being who you really are and being that person that is set apart for God. There's a real probing question you can ask yourself today, and you'll probably be real careful how you answer it because I've kind of already given it away, but 
what would you do if you could do something and nobody would ever find out you did it? Oh, see, go down here to Chase Bank, rob it, tithe on the money to First Baptist Church, and nobody ever find out about it, eh, but God knows about it, right? And see, what we would do if we, if we think about what we would do if nobody would ever find out really reveals who we are. We steal because we're thieves. We're not thieves because we steal. What are we inside? What would we do if, we know, if no one found out? We should be men and women of integrity, honesty, transparency. What you see is what you get, and what you see ought to be honorable to God. Amen? It ought to be something that would glorify God. It ought to be a good testimony. Deuteronomy 25, 13, you must use accurate scales when you weigh out merchandise. Preacher, what does that have to do with anything? You must use full and honest measures. You know what they would do sometimes in those days? They would, and maybe still do. They would, they would have a scales, and they would weigh out whatever it is you're buying over here, and then they would put the corresponding weight over here, and sometimes they would hollow those weights out and fill in the bottom so it looked like it was a pound or whatever measure they were using, and so you paid for a pound, but you were buying air. He says, don't do that. Be honorable in your dealings. Be honorable in your business dealings. Pastor, you don't understand, out in the business world, it's, it's, uh, it's cutthroat out there, and it's, you got to do what you got to do. No, you got to do what the Bible says you've got to do. That's what you've got to do. God will honor you. God will bless you. God will bless your work. God will bless your efforts if you are honorable and honest, and if you use honest weights. Proverbs twelve seventeen says, an honest witness tells the truth. A false witness tells lies. What we say, what we lead people to believe by our actions ought to be consistent with what's honest and honorable. In Matthew 5, he says, let your yes be yes and your no, no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. And Luke 6, 31, Jesus said, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. So if, if I were a pastor and I said, I want to call people, I would call people who, who were honorable and honest. Because if someone's honest, you, you don't, you can't ever trust them, is that right? Can't ever trust them. And then generous. The Macedonians were Generous and extravagantly so. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, listen to this in verse 1. Paul said, Now I want you to know, dear brothers and sisters, what God in his kindness has done through the churches in Macedonia. Now listen to their situation. They are being tested by many troubles, and they are very poor. The churches in Macedonia were going through all kinds of tribulations and testings and trials, and they don't have a lot of resources. They're very poor. But they're also filled, listen to this, with abundant joy. Not just filled with joy, but abundant joy. Lots of joy. Which has overflowed in rich generosity. They were so happy, they gave. You remember another place Paul said uh, he, he, loves, he wants you to give hilariously, cheerfully. With the, the word literally means hilariously. You know, as you walk by the offering box, you put the tithes and offerings in, and you're just laughing and slapping your knees, and just, you know, people think you're nuts, but you're hilariously giving. Here they were so filled with abundant joy that they overflowed with rich generosity, for I can testify that they gave not 
only what they could afford, but far more. The widow gave two mites. That was nothing. But Jesus said it was everything. Because to her, two mites was everything. It's not the amount you give. It's the proportion that you're giving of your means, of yourself, of your time, of your talents. And in Macedonia, they gave more than they could afford. And they did this of their own free will. No one twisted their arms. And Paul says, listen to this, they begged us again and again for the privilege of sharing in the gift for the believers in Jerusalem because the persecution was going on in Jerusalem and because uh, believers were not able to find work and jobs. They were being, they were being separated out and, and marked for persecution. And so they were going without. They were destitute. Some of them were being martyred. And the churches in Macedonia said, please let us, please, Paul, tell us what we can do. Let us know. Let us be part of giving so that we can help the believers in Jerusalem. And he concludes, verse 5, he says, they even did more than we had hoped for, for their first action was to give themselves to the Lord and to us, just as God wanted them to. So you know what God wants more than your offerings, your tithes? He wants you. I had one time I was baptizing a guy and uh, I always watch for, you know, if people have watches on and make sure they're waterproof or whatever. And he was, and back then we had, uh, uh, we didn't have baptismal robes. We just baptized in, in, in some street clothes or whatever they brought. And I noticed he had a bulge back. I said, uh, I, you, did you get your wallet out? He said, nope. I said, you better take that out. It's good. He said, nope. I said, I've used all that for my own self for long enough. I'm going to have it baptized right along with me. Have my wallet baptized right along with me. Amen. He wants, but here, he wants you first. Jesus was generous. He's the one who said it's more blessed to give than to receive. Anybody who's a grandma or granddad knows that. When you give something to your grandson, granddaughter, it, it makes you feel better than if someone gave something to you. What kind of people would a pastor want to call? Here's one. Here's a big one. Number seven, people who are steadfast, steadfast. First Corinthians 15, 58. So my dear brothers and sisters, be strong and immovable. Always work enthusiastically for the Lord, for you know that nothing you do for the Lord is ever useless. Nothing you do for Christ is ever useless. His word does not return void or empty. It accomplishes the purpose that he has for it. You got somebody you've been talking to about Christ for years, doesn't seem to be getting through. The Bible promise is not a single word that you speak for Christ will come back empty. It has a purpose. So keep on planting the seed. Keep on watering the seed. Keep on keeping on doing what God has told you to do. I love what Job said. You know the story of Job, and I think I referenced it a week or two ago because to me, Job is such an incredible character in the word of God. Because in one short period of time, he lost 10 children. He lost his wealth. He lost his influence in the city gates. He lost his wife's confidence in him. And I don't know about you guys, but to me, that's, it's like, you know what? I can charge hell with a squirt gun if Pat's behind me. <laughs> and to lose your wife's confidence, he lost it all. 
And he said to God, God, this wants you to know, even if you slay me, I'm going to trust you. Even if you kill me, I'm going to trust you. That is the definition of steadfast. I'm going to stay faithful no matter what. To the best of my ability, I'm going to stay faithful. My goal used to be, I'll just tell you, I used to have this goal of building a church of 5,000. That was my goal. That's what I really wanted to do. I believe God gave me that. I, I did believe that. We had a, an incredible growth over a short period of time, and I thought, you know, we're on our way. Well, that never materialized, never happened, but you know what I figured out? That God has as, my, as a goal for me and for every one of you too, and that is that we finish faithful to him, finish the race. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. And so Job said, even if you kill me, I'm going to go ahead and, and uh, I'm going to trust you. No matter, I'm going to, I want you to be steadfast. I want you to be consistent. I want you to be dependable. I want you to be faithful in attendance. I want you to be faithful in giving and inviting and witnessing and being friendly. I want you shaking hands with people and welcoming people. And every guest in here ought to have, if you have a complaint today, it ought to be, those people are so stinking friendly, I just can't hardly stand it. Everybody said hi to me. Everybody shook my hand. Ah. We had this thing, no mean people in leadership over there. <laughs> no mean people. No, I don't want mean people. If you're a grouch, you're welcome to come, but just don't tell people you go here. You know what I mean? Just <laughs> no mean people. I don't want, if you're mean, tell them you're from some other church. You know, just don't. No, I'm just kidding about that. Okay. There are a lot of used to beers and going to beers and has beeners around. Uh, but God wants you to be steadfast, folks, always, always, always faithful, always, always plugging along. God will hold you accountable. He'll hold me accountable for what we do with every single waking moment. That's why I don't use the term retired. I, I use the term reassigned because I, I, I don't think you retire from the calling of God. Besides, if I had a choice to preach or eat, if I had a choice, I'd, I'd want to do both. But I, I would really want to preach. I mean, I really do. I enjoy preaching. I got an illustration at home somewhere in my files. I couldn't find it for today. But uh, there was a layman in a Southern Baptist church who had 73 years of perfect attendance. Can you imagine those little pins they used to give out with the little things you add on every year? It probably hung down and probably he had to walk backwards for it to drag it, you know. That, now let me tell you, the, the, that's amazing. That's phenomenal. Not one Sunday did he miss. Not one Sunday in 73 years. He was older than 73, but not one Sunday did he miss in 73 years. And the remarkable thing was he was in World War II. He was a POW in World War II. And they gave him credit, whoever gives out the pens, for going to the chapel services when he, in the POW camp when he was able to go to the, to the when they had a, services. They gave him credit for that. Steadfast, always abounding. Peter says this way, I'm warning you ahead of time, dear friends, be on guard so that you will not be carried away by errors of the wicked people and lose your own secure footing. Rather, you must grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. All glory to him both now and forever. There are a lot of distractions. There are a lot of things that go on. There are a lot of things that try to run in competition with God's worship and God's service and honoring God. But you're where you ought to be. This is where God will bless you. This is, and, and if your church wants to be the kind that God will bless in a supernatural, natural way, then you've got to be supernaturally committed to him. 
who or what is God in your life. A pastor would want to call people who are steadfast. The eighth thing is unified. A unified people. In Psalm 133, one of the most poetic short psalms in the entire Bible. You know the book of Psalms was a song book, right? They were songs that, that Israelites sung. I don't know the tunes to most of them. We don't have any idea what the tunes are. But in Psalm 33, verse 1, how wonderful and pleasant it is when brothers live together in harmony. For harmony is as precious as the anointing oil that was poured over Aaron's head that ran down in his beard and under the corners of his robe. Harmony is refreshing as the dew from Mount Hermon, Mount Hermon that falls on the mountains of Zion. And there the Lord has pronounced his blessing, even life everlasting. Psalm 133, there was an anointing oil that was restricted to the priesthood. And it was a fragrant, pleasing odor to God. And everyone else was forbidden to use it. It was for the priesthood. And when they anointed the priest for the priestly duties, they would pour it upon his head. And it would run down into his beard and drip onto his, his holy consecrated clothing and on down to the corners of the garment. And, and, it, and that fragrance that would emanate from that incredible perfume is how the psalmist describes harmony when brothers and sisters are living together in unity and harmony. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, I want to remind you they were of one accord in one place. Unity. And then came the rushing of a mighty wind as it filled the house. And 3,000 people got saved. And by the way, he judges the vision. 1 Corinthians chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, and the rest of the 1 Corinthians. Number nine, almost through. A people, what kind of people would a pastor call? A people that walk with God. Walk with him daily. Not just Sundayly. Walk with him daily. You know, we come to church and everybody smiles, everybody's happy. Everybody. How you doing Monday morning? How you doing Wednesday? How you doing Friday night? Walk with God daily. John's gospel said the time is coming. Jesus said in John's gospel, chapter 4, the time is coming. Indeed, it is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way. Be in his word. Be in prayer. Be in church. I guess I'm old school. This is where we ought to be on Sunday morning. I gotta, I've got friends who say, well, I can worship God out on the hillside. And I understand what they're saying, but it seems like when they want to worship God out you know, in the wilderness, they always take a fishing rod or a, or a shotgun or a rifle with them. I don't know if they're going to shoot him, hook him, or what. And I understand. You know, you, creation de- declares the handiwork of God. You look up and the stars declare his handiwork. I understand that. But, but you know what? It's Sunday morning. The first day of the week, they gathered together to commemorate. Every single Sunday is Easter Sunday. Did you know that? Every single Sunday, we commemorate the risen Christ. What would happen if everybody... I'll tell you what would happen. First of all, there wouldn't be enough room. Every seat would be taken. That's a good problem to have. Have to figure out what to do then. Be in his word, be in prayer, be in his church, walk with God. And then last one, 
is be visionary. Visionary. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to be a dreamer. I want you to be a dreamer like Joseph. You know the story of Joseph. Jacob settled in the land of Canaan where his father had lived as a foreigner. And this is the account of Jacob and his family when Joseph was 17 years old. We have any 17-year-olds in here? Right back there, Gabe. Okay, 17. When Joseph, he was your age, okay? He often attended his father's, he, he often attended his father's flocks, and he worked for his half-brothers, the sons of his father's wives, Billa and Zilpha. But Joseph reported to his father some of the bad things his brothers were doing. Gabe, do you, you ever tell on your brother? Oh, never mind. Don't, don't. I want you to be unified and in harmony. I don't want to, Micah, I don't want to have any problems there. But Joseph went and told on, went and tattled on his brothers and what they were doing. Jacob, the Bible says, loved Joseph more than any of his other children. That was a bad deal. That shouldn't have happened, but he did. And because Joseph had been born to him in his old age. So one day, Jacob had a special gift made for Joseph, a beautiful coat or robe. But his brothers hated Joseph because their father loved him more than the rest of them. And they couldn't say a kind word about him. One night, Joseph had a dream. And when he told his brothers the dream, they hated him even more. Listen to my dream, he said. I can just hear the 17-year-old. Listen to my dream. We were out in the field tying up bundles of grain. Suddenly, my bundle stood up, and your bundles all gathered around. Guess what they did? They bowed down to me. Well, that's not the way to win friends and influence people. His brothers responded, so you think you'll be our king, do you? Do you actually think you'll reign over us? And they hated him all the more because of his dreams and the way he talked about them. Well, Joseph was a slow learner. So soon Joseph had another dream. And again, he told his brothers about it. Listen, I have had another dream. They said, we can't wait to hear about this one. They didn't say that. I said that. He said, the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars bowed down before me. This time he told the dream to his father as well as to his brothers, but his father scolded him. What kind of dream is that? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? But while his brothers were jealous of Joseph, his father wondered what the dreams meant. Joseph had a dream. And by the way, he didn't give up on the dreams. Some of you had dreams and you've given up on them. Have a dream, tell a dream, do a dream. Don't give up on your dreams. If they honor Christ, if they honor the Lord, they honor God, keep on dreaming those dreams. Keep on desiring those things. Keep on working toward those things. Have a dream, tell a dream, do a dream. That's what Joseph did. And you know what happened to him? They sold him as a slave. His own brothers, his own half-brothers sold him as a slave. He wound up in Egypt as a slave in Potiphar's house. And in Potiphar's house, you can't keep a good guy down. He, he still had the same character, and he still excelled in everything he did, and he was obedient to his master. And his master, Potiphar, said, you know what? You're so incredible. I'm going to put you in charge over everything in my household and in my business. You can, you're in charge of all of it. The only thing that I'm keeping from you is my wife. And his wife tried to entice him. And when he wouldn't yield... She grabbed him by a coat, and he fled and left his coat. You know, his coats were always getting him in trouble. You notice that? I try not to wear jackets too often for that very reason. So she's there with his coat, and she says, and the servants, the other people of the household come in, and say, hey, look what he tried to do. He tried to molest me. And so they had him put in prison. Now, look, he's a, he's a dreamer, and he's a slave, and, and, and then he gets lied about, and now he's a slave, and he's in prison in a foreign country that doesn't know God, love God, or serve God. 
And what happens there? He rises to a position of influence and power in the prison system. He becomes a trustee in the prison. Baker and the butler come in. He has another. They have dreams now. Everybody's dreaming. I can't even remember my dreams. I'd get a, if I were Joseph, I'd have got it. Hey, let me tell you what happened. I had a dream last night. I don't remember what I dreamed, but it was really good, whatever it was. Baker and Butler told him. He told him the meaning of their dreams. And, and then Pharaoh had a dream. Everybody's dreaming. They all had too much pizza before they went to bed. They're all dreaming. And what happens? He gets promoted, second in charge, the greatest nation at that time. And guess what happens eventually? His brothers and his father and his mother come, and they bow before him, just like his dream said they would. So set some goals. Set some personal goals. 17 years old, set some goals. You're 57 years old, set some goals. Don't die until you're dead. Keep on keeping on. Set some employment goals. Set some some church goals. Get get faith and courage and wisdom and blend them all up and, and become people of great vision. What could God do in Coronado through the First Baptist Church if this church caught on fire for him? And will you pray for that to happen? There's no time right now for you as a church member to play hooky from church. It's no time for you to desert your post. This is not a good time to backslide. It's never a good time to backslide. It's no time to let down, ease up, or give in. Satan is looking for ways to destroy because that's what he does. Be the kind of people that God wants you to be and the kind of people that a pastor would like to call. And God will give you some revival. Would you bow your heads, please? Our Heavenly Father, thank you for your word that gives us direction. Thank you for your word that challenges us. Thank you for the Holy Spirit that empowers us and gives us the opportunity to be what we couldn't be without him. Thank you, Lord, for this church, these people, And I pray, God, that your will would be done in their church and that they would, in fact, be the people that a pastor would like to call. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want you to stand.